0: Well, in Exodus chapter seventeen, we find the Israelites uh, in the uh, middle of the uh, their wilderness wanderings, if you please, uh, very upset with Moses because there's no water, and uh, so they complain, they murmur, and Moses calls out to God, and uh, God tells him to take his rod and strike the rock, and he did, and out of that rock came a veritable river of water out of solid rock, enough to satiate the thirst of all their flocks and herds, from one million to three million Jews, depending on whose account you read. And yet, despite that miracle, and in fact, I might say, uh, on the heels of that miracle, there came a battle. And let me just uh, remind you that when you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. One of the most dangerous times in the life of a Christian is after a great victory, after a great blessing. So we pick up the story uh, beginning in verse number eight, because right after this great victory came a great battle. Then came Amalek and fought with Israel and Rephidim. And Moses said unto Joshua, Choose us out, men, and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in mine hand. So Joshua did as Moses had said to him, and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass, when Moses held up his hand, that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy, and they took a stone and put it under him, And he sat thereon, and Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side, and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua discomfited, or defeated, Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Now, Father, bless the reading of thy word tonight. We have felt your presence, and we have rejoiced in the... Glory that has been sent to you through song and worship and praise. And now as we come to the preaching of the Word, I pray that you would focus our minds and direct our hearts to give full attention to the precious Word of God. Be with your servant as I speak, because it is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. We all need that spirit tonight, in Christ's name, amen. Some time ago when I was pastoring in Holland, Michigan, and I was praying seriously about a new direction in my life, I was praying about going into a ministry of uh, counseling those in the ministry. I had not made that decision, but I was on the verge of that decision. And as God often does when I face a decision, He brought... Uh, something into my life to shake me and uh, get my attention. A few miles north of where I lived there in Michigan, there was a very dear friend of mine, a pastor, a godly man, uh, a rough man, a man who had been saved from the other side of the tracks, grew up in poverty. Uh, His parents uh, were alcoholics. He himself became an alcoholic and a barroom brawler, he was six feet four inch of uh, and 250 pounds of pure muscle and raw sinew. You didn't mess with this man. But the Lord got a hold of him in a marvelous way and took him out of that bar and put the Spirit of God within him and a love of souls in his heart, and he became a preacher, a rough preacher, certainly not the most polished, but one who loved. The people on the other side of the tracks, especially the little children, uh, because he remembered himself when he was a child in that sort of setting. And so he sent buses out into the into the poor neighborhoods, and he picked up these boys and girls. and he he stood in the middle of his parking lot every Sunday morning with his pockets full of candy. All the kids would pile off of their buses and they'd run to him and they'd st- stick their hands in his pocket to get some candy. And he'd hug them and love them. They loved him. He loved them. I I never saw such a love affair in my life. This great big giant of a man so in love with little children. Well, one day his bus director came to him and he said, Pastor, we we got a problem with one of our buses. It has a weak place in the floor and uh, we really shouldn't uh, send it out because if uh, a child were to step on that weak place, they could possibly even uh, go through the floor. Well, they, they thought about it and gave it uh, careful consideration, but he just could not stand the thought of 60 of his boys and girls not being able to come to Sunday school that morning. And so they made a fateful decision to cover that hole with a piece of cardboard and put around uh, the chair in, uh, in, uh, that that hole was found near, Uh, uh, tape and signs that basically said danger, stay out, uh, do not go in, do not enter. But as the bus was rolling down the road, an eight-year-old boy decided to push the envelope and vaulted over the back of that chair. His foot went through the cardboard box, wedged between the dual tires, and was pulled under immediately and crushed to death. The pastor came upon the scene and his tender heart, was absolutely crushed and broken as he knelt over that body and realized it was his decision and his alone that had sent that bus on the road and he felt upon him all the weight of the death of that child. I got a call that afternoon as the president of the State Pastors Fellowship to come and preach for him because he couldn't preach. And sure enough, when I arrived that evening and he was sitting over here on the platform, uh, he was just sobbing, shaking, through the whole service. It was like a funeral. They didn't know what to do with him. And he didn't know what to do. And so they sent him to a psychiatric hospital. In a nearby city. A Christian psychiatric hospital. Christian in name at least. Where they filled him with drugs and therapy. But very little hope. And when he came out of that hospital. After two weeks. He was a truly a shadow of his former presence. And he never regained his place in ministry and never went back into the pulpit. I tell you that story for a reason. When I heard that story, God burdened my heart more than ever that somebody needs to do something. You know, there is a, there is a ministry out there uh, in the world for every segment of society. You cannot name A segment of society that does not have somebody ministering to it. From the drug addict, the alcoholic, the homeless, the unwed mothers. It doesn't matter. Every branch, every facet, every single segment of society has a ministry. Come inside the four walls of the church and you have the same thing. You have a ministry to every facet of the church. Conspicuous by its absence is one ministry, however. And that's a ministry to the minister. That's what God was burdening my heart about. And when my pastor friend uh, went through that experience and I looked into his eyes after he came out and saw the defeat and the despair and the depression and the utter hopelessness and fatalism that had filled his soul, this once vibrant soul winner, this once effective preacher of the gospel, this man who loved the boys and girls to Jesus, filled his church with lost people from the other side of the tracks, suddenly useless in the work of God. And so God burdened my heart. And uh, shortly after that, I left my church really by faith. I, I think there's a very thin line between faith and stupidity. And Johnny Cash and I walk that line, I guarantee you. Uh, I, and I walk it an awful lot and I, I'm, not, I'm not really convinced that God doesn't uh, bless uh, that step of faith more than He does that step of logic. You know, when the Israelites were gathered on the edge of the Jordan River and they had the Uh, They were carrying the Ark of the Covenant. God said, when the soles of your feet touch the water, I'll part it. This is in Joshua chapter 3, I believe. Now, uh, that's a scary thought. And I I, I stand on on the edge of the Jordan River right now, and, and I look to the other side of the river, and I see the Philippines. And God is basically saying, I want you to go over there. And uh you know after I, I go through arguing with God about my age cuz I I am uh I I am 8 and um and I I do want to say this however that the Philippine uh, Filipinos have a great admiration for age and that's exactly why I do everything I can to look older I dye my hair I wear a body pad I, I just I don't know what else to do and, and so when uh They actually think that I'm older than I am. Well, uh, when God puts it in your heart to do something, it's almost inevitable that uh, we go through this process of evaluating our ability compared to our responsibility. Now, I used to think as a young man that gap between my ability And my responsibility would shrink as I got older. Quite the opposite. It gets wider. And you know what? The same bridge that bridges it when you're young, bridges it when you're old. And the bridge is faith. Faith in the power of God. Trust in the power of God. Well, God led us to start that ministry in 1989. We did that for 21 years here in the States. Over a thousand pastors and missionaries and evangelists came through the doors of our our counseling center. And now we're going to the Philippines because my heart still beats and I am still burdened to help those in ministry. So we're going over there to help train those uh, as they get ready for ministry. We're going over there to train those in ministry through a counseling institute. And we'll also be providing a um, a counseling center, residential, long-term, or short-term, I should say, uh, residential, short-term, crisis intervention counseling center in the city of Manila for the, the missionaries and for the national pastors and, and perhaps some people they refer to us. But our ministry is going to be one like Aaron and her, holding up the hands of Moses. And I believe, and I, and I, I had to think as I looked at this, As I look at our ministry, as I look at your church, as I look at any work of God, that God has a plan. God has a way of doing it. I'm a reductionist. I like to go into the Bible, and I like to find a paradigm or a template. I like to find some model that I can base uh, my ministry on or my direction on. I, I like to have Scripture that frames my decision, and my methods, and my techniques, and my vision, and my mission. I want to know that what I'm doing is of God. Wouldn't it be good if God could just lay out a plan for the Capital City Baptist Church and say, okay, here's here's my plan. Well, my friends, I think He has. And that's what I bring to you tonight. To encourage your hearts, hopefully to challenge you as an individual... To strengthen the hands of this ministry. What is that plan? Well you'll notice here. uh, In verse uh, number 8. Then came Amalek. And fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said unto Joshua. Choose us out men. And go out. Fight with Amalek. Uh, And and tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill. With the rod of God in mine hand. It's an interesting choice of words. Rod. Of God, why did He choose those words? If you want to know about a doctrine of the Bible, one of the great principles within the uh, within the um, uh, system of hermeneutics, which is a term we use for Bible interpretation, one of the great principles of interpreting the Bible is the law of first mentioned. The law of first mentioned basically uh, states that. All doctrine uh, should begin with the first mention of that doctrine, should not contradict it, should uh, should really uh, fulfill it and build upon it. So when was the rod of God first mentioned? Go back in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 4, and we can see that it appeared for the first time during the call of Moses. Reluctant Moses, resistant Moses, kind of rebellious Moses, who didn't want to do what God wanted him to do. And God had to get into this discussion with Moses. Verse 4, And Moses answered and said, But behold, they will not believe me. Can I stop right there and say that one of the great hindrances uh, to men and women, to young people of obeying God is credibility. Why should they believe me? Who am I? Uh, If I I speak up for Christ, uh, will they believe me? Will they really believe what I say? Why should they believe me? That's what Moses is saying. And by the way, with good reason, because Moses is a murderer. Some 40 years before this, Moses killed an Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Remember that? And when he knew that it was known he fled into the desert for 40 more years 40 years in Egypt 40 years in the desert and now that he's had all of that time God comes to him and says I want you to lead my people out of Israel and he said they won't believe me look at my past look at my track record look at this indictment hanging over my head why should they believe me You ever feel that way? You ever wonder? If I go to my friends in school or if I go to someone on the street, who am I? Why? They won't even believe me. And you know what? If you're you're looking at yourself alone, you might have some merit to that argument. But God's going to answer that argument in a minute. Now, notice the second thing He says, Nor hearken unto my voice. Now, if you want to know what that means, just go a few more verses in verse 10, and read these words. And Moses said unto the Lord, Oh, my Lord. Now, he's not cussing there. He's, he's, he's incredulous. And he says, I am not eloquent, neither heretofore, nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant. I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. No wonder, he said, uh, they will not hearken unto my voice. It's, it is believed that Moses was a major stutterer. Most people that you read on this passage uh, agree that he had he had uh, trouble with his speech. Now, whether it was stuttering or like Paul, who said, "My my speech is contemptible," it's believed that the Apostle Paul had a high, shrieking, shrill voice. You know, I like to I like to identify. Uh, different tools with voices. You know, there's some there's some voices like a, a like a chainsaw. After you listen to them a while, you know, you just feel like you're getting cut in pieces. And then there's then there's those people with a with a voice like a dentist drill. I you not it and read your voice? i lift up your voice like a trumpet. But <laughs> you feel it's drilling into the marrow of your brain. You know. Well, it's believed that Paul's voice was like that. He had this shrill, high voice so that people said his speech was contemptible. He says, my bodily presence is base. It's believed that he was a bald, uh, short, little overweight uh, gnome of a creature with bug eyes. He literally had chronic ophthalmia, which means that his eyes uh, came out of their sockets. So he looked like he was afraid all the time. All right, now now think about this a minute. His his eyes were so bad, he had to write in large letters, the Bible says. Now, (laughs) if this guy walked into the pulpit, this short little bald-headed gnome with bug eyes, he had a high, squeaky voice. Like a dentist drill. Would you really want to listen to that? And, and one of the miracles, in my opinion, of the Apostle Paul is that he still was one of the greatest, well, probably the greatest preacher of the apostolic era. With all those deficiencies. Now, I don't know what I don't know what your deficiencies are. I don't know what excuse you give to God that you can't speak for him, you can't serve him. I don't know if you're looking at, well, they won't believe me, and, or you're looking at your, your shortcomings, your lack of education, your lack of personality, your lack of gifts, uh, your lack of ability to, to speak out, your, your, your fear of standing in front of a crowd, or even talking to an individual, but most people at some time in their life are like Moses, and they say, well... They won't believe me and they won't hearken unto my voice. Now look at the third thing he says. And they for they will say, the Lord hath not appeared unto thee. Now here's what, what he's saying here is I have no authority. I have no authority to stand before these people and say, thus saith the Lord. Because they will say, the Lord hath not appeared unto thee. Did, did anybody see the, the debate between uh, uh, Bill Nye, the science guy, and Ken Ham? Anybody see that debate? Uh, Ken Ham has been mocked, ridiculed, sliced and diced and criticized by the media ever since that debate because basically they say they mock him because he kept referring to a book that has the answers. They laughed at him. And you know why? They don't believe the Lord's appeared to him. And they may not believe the Lord has appeared to you in his word. But many people say, Well, I have, I have no credibility, I have no ability, and I have no authority. Who am I to lead Israel uh, out of Egypt? And who am I to represent God to a lost and dying world? And so God answers him, and the Lord said unto him, What is that in thine hand? And he said, A rod. For you baseball fans, that is not a rod, that's a rod. And he said, cast it on the ground, and he cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses fled from before it, as would I. And the Lord said unto Moses, put forth thine hand, and take it by the tail. And he put forth his hand, and he caught it, and it became a rod in his hand. And then listen to the word of the Lord. That they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, hath appeared unto thee. So here's... The answer of God to Moses' concern about credibility: Take that rod and throw it down, and it became a snake. Remember that in Pharaoh's, uh, or in, uh, um, in in this incident here in Exodus chapter four, it became a snake. It morphed back into a stick. God says, all right, now, if anybody has any questions about your credibility, you can say, the Lord God hath appeared unto me. And verse 10, or verse 12, he says, Now, therefore, go, and I will be with thy mouth. I will give you the ability. Now, here's the interesting thing about Moses when I think about this. God's first um, response to Moses was give him Aaron as a spokesman. He actually, for the first part of his ministry, uh, went in tandem with his brother Aaron. And he was to, unto Aaron as God, and Aaron was to him as a mouth. And so Moses told Aaron what to say because he got it from God, and Aaron spoke it clearly. But by the end of Moses' life, he was one of the most eloquent public speakers with some of the greatest sermons spoken to Hundreds of thousands of people the world has ever known. But he began with his limitation because God told him to and he did it by faith. Verse 17, And thou shalt take this rod in thine hand, wherewith thou shalt do signs. Now, in order for him to have the authority of God, he has this rod with which to do signs. Now look at verse 20, And Moses took his wife, and his sons and set them upon an ass, and he returned to the land of Egypt, and Moses took the rod of God in his hand. Now, I want you to understand that, that God's word names that rod the rod of God. It's just a stick, it's just an inanimate object. It's a it's a cheap piece of lumber, it's meaningless in every way. Useless in most ways until it becomes a rod of God. And just like us, we're earthen vessels, we're base and weak and foolish and despised, and we're not, we're not, we're not even considered. Some people in this room, on on the scale of humanity, uh, uh, the scale of ministry, uh, opportunities, you're not even on the chart. You're not even on the radar. People don't even, they, they, they don't just say you're no good. They ignore you. They ignore you. That that may be worse than being told you're no good. Just people don't even think about you as being a potential for the work of God. You know, when I was, um, when I graduated from college, I was Asked by a man to help him in his ministry. And he had a ministry to the intellectual, the affluent, and the elite. And his belief was if you win people up, way up high to the Lord, then all the people underneath uh, would be interested. If you could win the Miley Cyruses of the world. If you could win the Donald Trump's of the world. If you could win the Stephen Hawkins of the world. If you could win these people who are greatly influential in their respective fields. If you could win the Michael Jordans, oh, everybody would just, would just out, of, out of excitement, listen to what they had to say, and more people could get saved because of this trickle-down effect. He said, I'll, buy, I'll give you a new car every year. I'll give you a five-figure salary. That was more than I could ever have imagined. And as I thought about that, it dawned on me how God works. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. So who is God calling? The intellectual, the affluent, and the elite? Is God, where, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to find the well-educated? To find the person who has a great personality and charm and talent? to find a person who has a a, a gift of speaking in such a way that people will be drawn to him? Where do the eyes of the Lord fall? God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise and the weak things of the world to confound the mighty and the base and the despised and the things that are not to bring to naught the things that are And why? That no flesh should glory in His presence. And God even goes so far as to say this. We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. You say, well, Brother Benny, I'm no good. I have nothing to offer God. I'm just an earthen vessel. Well, guess what? You're just who God is looking for. But the moment the moment you start silver plating that earthen vessel and gold plating it and jewel encrusting it and draping it in purple to impress people with your wonderful dirt pot, you are disqualified. God shares his glory with no one. He's not looking for a bunch of polished vessels. He's looking for a dirt pot. And in fact of matter, listen to me well, the baser... The vessel, the greater the glory of the contents by contrast. You may be the very Moses that God is looking for for your family, for your neighborhood, for your community, for your city. You may be the very person, but you've been listening to the devil, the accuser of the brethren, because he's a look at you. You're no good. I mean... I mean, just you, you're not like the pastor up there. You're not like Brother Bob. You're not like Brother Ben. You don't have, you don't have the education. You don't have the abilities. You don't, oh, forget it. And you listen to him like Moses did. And so God came with the first part of his plan. And the first part of his plan on that mountaintop that day as, Moses, or as Joshua confronted Amalek in the valley below was for Moses to go to the top of that hill with the rod of God in his hand. Now that rod represented the provision of God. That rod represented the presence of God. That rod represented the promise of God. And may I sum it all up by saying that rod represented the power of God. It was the same rod that He held out and the river turned to blood in chapter 7. In chapter 9, He held it out and the hail came. In chapter 10, He held it out and the locusts came. In chapter Uh, Ten also, he held it out and the darkness came on the nation of Egypt. It was the same rod he held out over the Red Sea. And like a lightning rod, it garnered the power of heaven and focused on that one place and divided the Red Sea. And it was the same rod that he used to smite a solid rock out of which came a river of water seven times. Seven times God took that rod in Moses' hand and performed miracles with it to let him know this is the rod of God and all the power of God, Moses, is vested in you. No work of God will ever succeed without the power of God. But here's my question to you, and don't answer this too quickly. Is the power of God alone enough? Because as you study the Bible, you will find that the power of God does not rain down upon the earth indiscriminately, falling in wastelands and desert places, on mountain peaks, and on an open sea. Rather, the power of God is funneled with laser beam specificity to one point and one person. A person. And ye shall be witnesses unto me. After that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Listen to me, dearly beloved. Yes, we need the power of God, but there's a second part to God's plan. That rod did not float to the top of that mountain and hang suspended in midair of its own accord, that rod, that power, that rod of God was held in the hands of a prophet of God. A person, a man, a minister. Look at John chapter 1 for a moment, would you please? Because we have here perhaps one of the greatest descriptions in all the Bible... Of what a prophet or a man of God is. Verse 6 There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. Now I want you to know what a man of God is. I want you to know what a prophet of God is. The first thing I see here is that he has a divine authorization. He's sent from God. Now, you have a wonderful church here. And I want to tell you that this church, just like any other church that has a pastor, can make a fatal mistake. You can conclude that you hired him. You can even conclude that you called him. You can even conclude that you voted on him. I don't know what method or technique or what manner or what what you went through in order for your pastor to be your pastor. But I know why he's here. Just like any other pastor he's sent from God. And the sooner the church comes back to an old-fashioned realization... That the imprimatur of God is on the ordination pastors of, uh, papers of a pastor, that the signature of God is on his uh, marching orders, that he has a divine authorization, that this isn't just a good idea, and this isn't an organizational strategy, and this isn't some type of ecclesiastical methodology. God has a plan. And God's plan is to put the power of God in the hands of a prophet of God because the prophet of God is sent from God. Right. Now, here's the, call, here's the best definition of a call of God I've ever heard. Young people, listen to this. A call of God is a chronic conviction given by the Holy Spirit and confirmed by the Word of God in the church. Can I say that again? You say, I I wonder if I've been called to preach. A call of God is a chronic conviction, especially a conviction that keeps coming up during times of spiritual closeness with God, during your prayer time, during the church services, the preaching. It's a chronic conviction. It won't leave you alone. It won't go away. It keeps coming back. It's chronic. It's given by the Holy Spirit. And then it's confirmed by the Word of God and the church. And so God puts His hand out to a man and He calls him. Now let, let me say that there's a real danger in our understanding here. Because I, I'm going to make a statement that you may not understand. It is my view that God calls people... God uh, puts a divine authorization on people who are not uh, strong, on people who are weak. Do you know that every time the Apostle Paul referred to himself as a man, he used such things as, um, I am the chief of sinners, the least of the saints. The least of the apostles. When it came to his person, he spared himself no denigration, no insult, no minimizing, because he knew the truth. He was an earthen vessel. Look at Hebrews chapter 5, if you would, for a minute. When we think about the, uh, the prophet, the priest, the leader... God says in verse 1 that every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men and things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now watch this. Who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. And by reason hereof he ought, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer for sins. And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. What kind of a man does God call to serve him? Someone who is compassed about with infirmities. What kind of a person does God call to be a soul winner? What kind of a person does God call to teach a Sunday school class? What kind of a person does God call to sing in the choir? What kind of a person does God God call to take any position in the local New Testament church? The person encompassed with infirmity, but my friend, it's that very person, it's you that the devil comes to and says you're not qualified because you're too infirmed. And God says that's your greatest qualification for when I am weak. Then am I strong. Most gladly therefore will I glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. God is not looking for triathletes. God is not looking for gold medal winners. God is not looking for the intellectual, the affluent and the elite. God is looking for the foolish and the base and the despised that no flesh should glory in His presence. There's not a person in this room God can't use. In a way that is unbelievable. And if you will call unto me. I will answer thee. And I will show thee great and mighty things. That thou knowest not. My God my friend. My God is able to do exceeding. Abundantly. Above all that we ask or think. If you would give yourself to meditation on that truth. That means this. Just imagine at your wildest dream. What God could do with your life and then kick it up about 10,000 notches because that's what God wants to do. God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or even think. Our problem is we don't ask or think. We just sit there and say, poor me, I got nothing, I am nothing, I can't do nothing. Let the professionals do it. Let the gifted people do it. I don't have good health, I don't have a good body, I don't have a good personality, I don't have a good mind, I don't have a good education. And you know what? The reason that in the typical church in America, 20% of the people do 80% of the work is those very thoughts. And that's an average All across America in the 350,000 Protestant churches that exist in the United States of America, 20% of the people do 80% of the work. What do the other 80% do? They want to be ministered unto. They want to come to church and get a blessing. They want to feel warm fuzzies. They want an experience. But they will sit there and do nothing and let the other people do the work because they've convinced themselves or they believe the lie of Satan that they have nothing to offer God. It's not so much what you offer God, my friend, as what God offers you. But I will tell you this, when someone comes to God and says, Here am I, Lord, send me, he will get excited about that. And the blessings of God will fall on him. Now, so when when Paul talked about himself, he said, I'm nothing. But when Paul talked about his office, he said, Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. In Romans, in 1 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians, in Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, 1 Timothy, and 2 Timothy, Paul began every one of those letters with a clear exclamation of his divine authorization, Paul, an apostle, called of God. He said it over and over. Now, when it came to his person, he said, I'm nothing, I'm a nobody, I'm the chief of sinners, I'm the least of the apostles, and I'm the least of saints. But when it came to his office, he said, I magnify my office. And until and unless, dear friend, until and unless, we make that distinction of our spiritual authority, whether it be our fathers, our husbands, our pastors, our political leaders, even our bosses. Until we begin to see our spiritual authority in a very clear distinction from their personality to their position and never blur the line in between. We will not afford the submission and the leadership that God wants us to. And so the devil, listen to me, the devil is going to do everything he can to blur that line. Now, I don't, I don't agree with Obama. There's not much I like about him. I don't like his politics, his philosophy. I don't like his uh, religion. But if I were in a room and he walked into the room, I would stand on my feet. Why? Because Barack Hussein Obama walked in the door? No. Because President Obama, the President of the United States of America, the man appointed unto God unto me for good, like it or not, he's in that office because God allows him to be there. He is my President. That's the difference between his position and his personality. Your husband, ladies, your father children have a personality. You know all about it. And you probably could cite an entire litany of failures and weaknesses and even sins that justify your refusal to follow their leadership. And you know what you're doing? You're letting the accuser of the brethren... Erase that line of distinction between their personality and their position. And until you get back and see that the leader is sent from God, you will never afford him the respect. You will never put yourself under his leadership. And I want to tell you, the plan of God is thwarted when we fail to do that. In the home, in the church, on the mission field, it's all the same. Now go back to John chapter 1. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light. So Moses was sent up to that mountaintop with a divine authorization. Moses, I want you to go up and hold up the rod in your hands. So Moses had a divine authorization. He also had a holy obligation. Now notice what he says here. The same came for a witness, verse 7, to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. This holy obligation that the man of God has is a very unique calling. Now here's the difference between your work and the pastor's work or your work and a missionary's work. You you work from nine to five. You come home at the end of the day, your work's over. But you know what? A pastor's work never ends. And furthermore... Everything a pastor does, everything a missionary does, everything an evangelist does is with an eternal cause in view. And so whether your pastor is praying, it's to bear witness of the light. Soul winning, to bear witness of the light. Preaching, to bear witness of the light. Hospital visit, to bear witness of the light. He has a holy obligation. And I want to tell you what. Uh, Only those, I think, in ministry understand the fear, the raw, primal fear that sometimes wraps its icy fingers around the heart of a man who realizes he's standing between his armies in the valley and God himself. And he's got to hold that rod up. And that brings us to a problem. And the problem is, verse 6, there was a man. Along with the divine authorization and the holy obligation is a human limitation. And we have human limitations. All men have human limitations. So God says, no, uh, I want you to have those human limitations. Because Moses, when you go up on top of that mountain, I want your faith to be in me. So Moses goes up to the top of the mountain, takes that rod of God in his hand. Now we got the power of God, and we got the prophet of God, but that, this is the problem. The prophet of God, with the power of God, begins to shake and quiver. And the rod begins to lower. And with every centimeter it lowers, he hears the death shrieks of his family and his friends from the valley below. He hears the sounds of bodies thudding into the desert sand. He sees the sun glistening off of growing pools of blood. And he realizes it's my fault. It's my responsibility to hold this rod up. And so he grit his teeth and he said to himself, what I need is a seminar on rod holding up. I heard the first church down the street is having a special conference on rod holding up techniques. 20 ways to hold up the rod. I think I'll go to a seminar and take a lesson on how to hold up the rod. Now, folks, I don't want to minimize education. And I don't want to uh, somehow, I don't want to mock methodologies and techniques. But the moment our faith shifts From the power of God to the methods of man, we don't have faith at all. Listen to me. Faith is the absence of scheming. Can I say it again? Faith is the absence of scheming. The moment you sit down and you use your methods and your techniques and your skills and you rely on them one centella, one iota more than the power of God you got an idol of the heart. And so we think we got to have, it's education that makes a difference. It's methods that make the difference. Let me tell you something, church. This church will be blessed of God to the degree that this church casts itself in pure faith on His will and His strength. And the moment you depart from that, the moment you find some fancy technique that seems to work, then you're going to lose the blessings of God. And so what's to be done? Because I will tell you right now, in the home, every husband and father in this room knows the pressure of leadership. In government, on the mission field, in the local church, everybody who's ever had a position of leadership knows exactly the pressures that come on it. And you know your incapabilities and your insecurities. And I'm convinced that many men, many Christian men at their home, they say, who am I to lead my family in worship? They know my failures. They know my sins. They they know all about me. How can I possibly say to them, let me lead you to the throne of grace? And you know what you're doing, dear friend? You're looking at your ability you're looking at your strength. You're looking at your power, which you don't have at all. But when you look to God, you'll have that strength. So Moses is there, and Moses is pushing his, his hands up. And now Aaron and her is there. Let's go back to uh, the passage of Scripture. Verse 11 and uh, Exodus 17. It came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. When he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy. And they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat there on. And Aaron and Hur stayed his hands, uh, stayed up his hands, one on the one side, on the other, on the other side. So here's Aaron and Hur, and they're watching Moses. Moses is quivering and trembling with exhaustion. The rod is lowering. You know what Aaron said? Aaron said, "You know, I think what we need here, Hur, we need a new, we need a new Moses." This guy's blowing. And we all know that everything rises and falls on leadership. Can I say this to y'all? That's one of the most damaging statements to be bandied about the church that I've ever known of. Everything rises and falls on leadership? Oh, why don't you put, why don't you put the leader under a little more pressure? No, it doesn't rise and fall on leadership. It rises and falls on the will of a sovereign God and the power of the divine creator. It rises and falls on the strength and the pleasure of God himself. Not on the ability of a man. I know why the statement was made and I know the man who made the statement. And I think it was made with all good intention to put the fear of God into young preachers. So they take the, uh, grab the horns of the altar and take the leadership of the church and do what's right. But it, it's been taken too far. And so, no, that's not what Aaron said. Aaron said, her, we got to do something. Let's put a stone under him so he can sit down. And you get on that side and I'll get on this side and we'll hold his hands up. And you know what they did? They esteemed him In his divine authorization. They enabled him in his holy obligation. They encouraged him in his human limitation. And how did they do that? They came alongside and said, Let us help you. I cannot thank this church enough for being an Aaron and her in our ministry. By coming alongside us and agreeing to hold up our hands while we go to the mission field. That is a tremendous gift that you've given us. And we are ever grateful. But I want to challenge you in two ways tonight. I want you to realize you don't have to be a Moses to serve the Lord. You can be an Aaron and a Her. You can just come alongside the pastor. You can enable him in his holy obligation. How can I do that? You know, anytime you free your pastor to bear witness of the light, you have a part in that ministry. You wash his car so he can go soul winning. You mow his grass so he can make a hospital visit. You, you, you fix his, uh, his plumbing so he can spend his time in prayer instead of, uh, of fixing the plumbing. You have a part in his ministry. Everything the pastor does has this goal in mind to bear witness of the light and anything you do to free him or any staff or any missionary, anything you do has a role in that ministry. You become an Aaron and a her. I hope and I pray that some of you who've been wrestling with this call of God on your life, maybe even in this local church, maybe what God wants you to do is come to your pastor and say, what can I do? How can I be an Aaron and a Her to you, Pastor? What can I do in our church? I don't want to be a part of that that 80% that does nothing while the 20% does 80% of the work. I don't want to come to church just to get a blessing and be ministered unto. I want to be like Jesus who came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. Can I ask you a question? Why did you come to church tonight? Who have you ministered to? Who have you targeted to minister to? Who do you know in this church that's depressed, discouraged, sick, or physically ill, infirmed in some way, who needs a hug, who needs a hand on their shoulder, who needs a kind word in their ear, who needs to hear somebody say, I'm praying for you, let me pray with you. Who did you come to minister to tonight? Or did you just, did you just come to be ministered unto? Is that your job description as a member of this church, just to come and sit and let the other people get up and sing and let the other people get up and preach. But Oh, I don't have a ministry, Brother Benny, because I don't have a class and I don't have a pulpit. No, you got a whole church. And if every person in this church would have the mindset that I'm going to minister to something, the word would get out of this neighborhood. There's a church that loves you and there's a church that ministers to you. And people, I believe, would flock to this door. Because people are looking for that. Well, I I heard about a pastor in Warren, Michigan. He was a pastor of a church of a 1,000. He was an officer in his state fellowship. He had an advanced degree in theology. He was the quintessential picture of pastoral success, or so they thought, until his assistant pastor came in to his office on Tuesday morning and found him hanging by his neck Suicide. Listen, I know 15 pastors personally who committed suicide. I knew them personally. I know one pastor's wife who committed suicide. You say, How can that be? I'll tell you how it can be. They didn't have an Aaron in her, somebody never paid attention. And they got to the place where they, they came to the end of themselves. And they had given up on God, and they took their life. One pastor called us one time at the manor. Now, what we did not know until he came and heard the rest of the story was that a man in his church had fought him and fought the church, physically attacked him in the pulpit, had to be pulled off his pastor in the middle of his service, Because of his anger. And he worked at that church and made phone calls and did everything he could. And within a two-year period, that church of 500 dissolved and closed their doors. And the pastor of that church had crawled under his desk in his office. And he took a gun with a hair trigger and he put it to his head. And just as he did, he looked up and saw a trash can in which was a magazine in which was an article that I had written attached to which was my phone number. And he took that magazine out of the trash can and he reached up above the desk and pulled the phone under and he held the phone to one ear, the gun to the other side of his head, and he called and he listened. And he started talking to my wife, sobbing. She was busy cooking supper for eight visitors we had that day. And she was hardly in a position to give time or attention, but in the best way she knew, she answered his questions, she prayed for him, and something kept him from pulling that trigger. And he came to be with us for five days of counseling. For the first three days, he couldn't stop crying. Little did I know that he, how close he had come to death until after all this transpired. And little did I know how close the church was to losing a great man of God. Because today, dear friend, he pastors a church out in the country in the Mideast and the Midwest, rather, a church that has almost as many people attending it as are in the town, has gone through three building programs. Because he got his heart encouraged in the Lord. And I want to tell you, if you don't think that that is a blessing to the heart of a counselor, you don't understand what the ministry is all about. He's in the ministry today, he says, because of what God did for him through that week that he came to be with us. Now listen to me and hear me well. My prayer is twofold. Number one. You would become an Aaron and a her in this church. Get out of the 80%. Stop coming to be ministered unto. And secondly, that every one of you would become an Aaron and a her to your Moses. That you would hold up his hands in prayer, in love, encouragement, and enablement. That's God's plan. God's power. In the hands of God's prophet, supported by God's people. And you go to the Bible, and you find a work of God, and almost every time, that's the formula. God's power in the hands of God's prophet, supported by God's people. And may God make the Capital City Baptist Church such a work as that. Now, Father, I pray you would bless the word of God to our hearts, and bless every individual here. Call those whom you would call. Strengthen those whom you would strengthen. Bless this ministry and may it go forward in the cause of Christ. God, that you would encourage their hearts through Aaron's and hers who would come alongside and hold up their hands in the midst of the battle. And may the victory in the valley below bring glory to your name.